Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Merry Christmas, listeners. I hope you are having a great Christmas day, either with friends or family, hopefully watching some fun movies, hopefully staying safe and not catching COVID this year as well. Um, Too late for me. I got COVID and did not get to celebrate Thanksgiving with my family. I just slept in bed all day and felt like garbage but i really do hope that you are having a nice time eating some fun food staying warm and safe and of course watching some fun movies alan and i thought this would be a great year to review a christmas story one that i absolutely love and one that i've seen many times before alan how many times have you seen this movie or is it new to you this isn't new but uh it almost is i've seen it one (laughs) time all the way through um and that was many years ago um probably about probably about six or seven years ago i'm pretty sure i was still in high school when when we watched it as a family Mm. that one time so it's been a while since i've seen i think i've seen like a scene or two here and there since that time but this will be my first time watching it all the way through since then so also listeners this isn't our only christmas special we've been doing it for a couple years now so if you're looking for some more christmas podcast reviews to listen to link is in the description below and if you're looking for something to pass the time maybe you're driving to a relative's house i know i would always drive to my grandma's house on christmas morning I think Alan had a little bit of a drive, maybe, uh, I don't know, eight or nine hours or something. <laughs> more like, well, it was more like six. Um, okay. But, you know, after driving six hours, at least twice every year, if not more, you get used to it. <laughs> yep, you get used to it. And a great way to pass the time is with more Christmas specials. So mm-hmm. those are in the link in the description below. Just uh, make it easier for you to find that way. Also, if you're ready for us to just jump into the podcast, timestamps are also in the description below. And of course, you'll notice at the top of the description is your guide to a Christmas story. So that'll give you all the fun background details on the making of the movie and the impact and whatnot as well. Um, Also links to our social media pages, our website, our Patreon page. We are on all major podcast platforms and all of those links are there. So if you don't want to listen on Apple Podcasts anymore and you want to listen on Stitcher or something, then that link is right there and very easy for you to find. So it's kind of weird, but Bob Clark directed this movie and We have reviewed another Bob Clark Christmas movie that is not one for the family. Um, He also directed Black Christmas. That's right. Yeah, we reviewed that a little bit over a year ago at this point. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, Bob Clark did 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 direct. I think it was not it was not his first horror movie, but it was probably the one that made him one of the one of his bigger films, Black Christmas. I think I've seen all of his films up to this point now. Um, even his earliest one, which is from the 60s and really weird. But yeah, this is an unusual... <laughs> a Christmas story is a very unusual one for him because he's mostly dabbled in in horror. And so when A Christmas Story came out, a little bit different 
than um than what he was known to do. Yeah, his oeuvre of work is all over the place. It's really strange. The only thing that kind of made sense is he did um, Porky's, which is kind of a raunchy 80s comedy yep. film. I haven't seen it. I'm sure I'll see it someday, but it was kind of a big deal back then. And uh, he also did that really weird movie uh, with uh, Sylvester Stallone and Dolly Parton that I have to see sometime. It's called Rhinestone, came out the year after this. Um, but nevertheless, Bob Clark did this movie with MGM. And I got to say, it's kind of crazy to think about it, though. This movie came out in 1983. But it just has this incredible feeling of the 40s. We'll talk about that later. Mm-hmm. But it's weird to think it came out in the 80s. So it came out Friday, November 18th. 1983 alan it's 1983 or maybe it's present day and you see the trailer for this movie what do you think does this trailer get you into it are you gonna go opening weekend or maybe sometime now keep in mind this did come out before thanksgiving right and it was not playing during christmas for reasons i will talk about here in a minute (laughs) um I, I don't know. Probably not. It looks to be too kiddish. Um, mm. It's rated PG. The trailer kind of makes it come off as if it's more geared towards kids than it is towards maybe somebody of my age. Um, so probably not. If I knew the name Bob Clark um, and I had to say I'd seen Black Christmas, I would be curious. But I don't know if I'd catch it in the theater. I'd probably wait until... A later i don't know if you could rent movies back in 83 um mm, but no, i really. would probably i probably wouldn't waste my time going to see this in the theater you know i hate to say it but the trailer is really weird <laughs> um i it, i don't like the music in the trailer it's just a bunch of random cut up scenes it tells me nothing what this movie is about and i don't like the narrator in the trailer they didn't use Gene Shepard, who narrates this movie for some reason. So I think the trailer is bad. I probably wouldn't be at the theater either in 83 uh, to see this, uh, especially before Thanksgiving. It just there's nothing about it that captures my attention. It just looks like a really strange movie. And you're right. Very much trying to capture a kid audience, like almost uh if you've ever watched a older VHS when you were a kid, then you would notice that some of these, um, well, especially a VHS, what I'm trying to say, that's oriented towards children. It's a kid's VHS. They do have these really weird narrations and mm-hmm. things that try to capture your attention and doesn't capture mine. So for me, no. Well, Alan, we were not the only ones feeling this way about the trailer because it was number three at the box office opening weekend. Hmm. And it did have a budget of 3.3 million. So a pretty low budget, I'd still say, especially yeah. for 83. Um, coming in at number three, uh, people really weren't interested. And it did have a decent wide release, especially for 83. So the question is, what beat it out? And the other interesting thing is, is that Thanksgiving weekend was next week. It was number one at the box office. Well, I believe it. I mean, it's a family film and it's releasing closer to the Christmas time. I believe that it would go, it would bump back up to number one. So, yeah. 
I mean, if if, it, if it's like anything that was like it's like today, like back in the eighties, you know, around Christmas time, Thanksgiving time, movies released around there. If they're family films, they're going to be getting a lot more attention. My guess, yeah, you're right. It, that's a good time to go see those movies. I'm also thinking it has to do with something with word of mouth, though, because it's like Could you be. said, the trailers weren't getting people in, but it grossed um, almost $2,000 more its second weekend than its first. Hmm. Or excuse me, $2 million more. Interesting. Yeah, I, I wonder if that's the case. You know, word of mouth got around that it's actually a good movie or whatever and it's not as kitty as it may seem kind of thing and so yeah maybe it could very well be that's the case but why did it come in opening week well of all things number one that weekend uh, it just shows you how slow it was amityville 3d which is the third installment from the amityville horror series number one at the box office with 2.2.3 million dollars at the end of November? Yeah, it sounds like a pretty slow movie week. Um, the only other movie to open that weekend was from uh, 20th Century Fox, aside from Paramount Picture, Savage Islands, which came in at number 14. We won't talk about that. Mm. Um, number two at the box office was The Big Chill, then A Christmas Story, then Never Say Never Again, and finally A Night in Heaven was number five. But like I said, Thanksgiving weekend over the long weekend – it um, ultimately jumped up to number one. And ironically enough, it beat what would become Best Picture of the Year. Really? What was that? It was Terms of Endearment. Oh, okay. So what, what did it make back in the theater overall then? So overall, it had a domestic gross of $19 million. Okay. it's pretty good. Yeah, off a $3 million budget, it's really not too bad. It's not great either. Um, honestly, um, the studio had no confidence in this movie and they didn't really care. So um, the, it got pulled from theaters um, before Christmas because it really just wasn't profitable. It wasn't going anywhere gotcha. um, to keep it in theaters that long. So um, the weekend after Thanksgiving, it was number two. And then its last week in theaters, um, the weekend of December 9th through 11th, it was number six. So it dropped oh. pretty far. Oh. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It did, didn't do great, unfortunately. Yeah. But it was released in – it was released a number of times, though. So that did help it I wonder box office. I wondered so, if how many times it was re-released back in the theaters. So I will say that domestic gross is including re-releases. Oh, okay. So it must have been much less than 19 million or at least not quite 19 million. Oh, it, it was. It was. Yeah, it, it really didn't do very well. It wasn't a flop, but it really didn't do very well. Gotcha. Okay. I will say it's kind of an understatement, though, to call this movie a cult classic. I would almost just say it's become straight up a Christmas classic. Yeah, it almost feels like it's another one of those uh, It's a Wonderful Life situations. Bombed mm -hmm. in the box office, and then <laughs> for one reason or another over time, it slowly gained back popularity within the home again. Um, and yeah. now it is now it is considered a Christmas classic at this point. So I wonder if that's... Um, it looks to be the case for this one as well. So it has a letterboxed rating of 3.7, which isn't too bad. That's not too bad. An IMDb rating of 7.9. That's still pretty good. <laughs> it's almost an eight. It's a yeah. it's a tenth of a point shy of an eight. It has an 89% certified fresh, 
rating on Rotten Tomatoes um, with 88% audience approval and a 77 Metascore. Yeah, so all across the board, these scores are pretty high. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Across the board, it uh, is very well regarded now. So something else that should be noted is that it was on the IMDb Top 250 for 15 years. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So the year the IMDb Top 250 came out, 1996, I believe, it was 216. And right. ultimately, it ended its run um, in 2013 at position 231. So my experience with A Christmas Story is kind of interesting because I believe I actually saw the movie for the first time the year that I got a Red Ryder BB gun from my aunt and uncle. Really? Yeah. In wow, that's interesting. Because let's say that's one of the things that's going to bring up the Red Ryder BB gun. I know since I did, re did research for this. It's a real thing, apparently. Um, I thought it was yep. just made up for the movie. No, no, no. There is very actually very little in this movie that's actually made up for this movie. Most everything we see is actually a real product of some sort. That's surprising. So, wow. Not only do I own a Red Rider BB gun, but I've actually seen the museum, the outside of the museum. It was closed when mm -hmm. I was there. Gotcha. Uh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> I saw this like many others people probably on TBS where they okay. played um, 24 hours a day on Christmas Day. I guess I didn't realize that they, no, I did know that they did that. That's probably honestly where I saw it too, to be mm -hmm. honest with you. Because I know that my dad ended up recording it on our TiVo. Mm -hmm. It would be hard to miss around Christmas time because I do play it so much. Mm -hmm. um, and it was at my grandma's house when I first saw it. And my grandma got me the Blu-ray bundle, which came with like Elf and Polar Express and other things as well. This was one of them. And... Uh, I want to say it was around middle school or early high school that I want to say it was around middle school. Um, in the month of December, I put the movie on every night before I went to bed really? and I fell asleep listening to it. So I could quote about the first 30 minutes of the movie before I <laughs> fell asleep. So, and I love the movie ever since. So f I guess for me, how I came across this one, um, I think it was probably around the same time that I watched It's a Wonderful Life for the first time. My dad, different story, but my dad recorded it on Ortivo, like I mentioned, um, and we were at home around Christmas time and he gathered us all together and we all watched A Christmas Story for the first time off Ortivo. And of course, fast forwarding through the commercials <laughs> like you do. Mm -hmm. um, ah, that was a number of years ago. Um, I was probably, I think I was in high school when he did show us that. So it was pretty late to actually see this, but I remember thinking it was hilarious. And I'll talk about this scene a little bit later when they cut the head off the goose. I don't want to get too much away, but when they do that, we laughed so hard. I remember that was like the scene that always got me. And we probably re rewound it and watched that one scene alone, like five or six times. And we couldn't stop laughing. Um, so yeah, um, it's funny. actually also kind of funny because it was at your house, uh, Corbin. We had it was a um, it was a Christmas party for this our Sunday school classroom, and one uh, mm. it was like one of those things you run and get a gift underneath the tree right whenever your number is called, and I just grabbed one and come to find out it was the Blu-ray to a Christmas story that somebody had brought. Um, really? So it's sitting on my on my movie shelf right behind me. So that's how wow. I ended up grabbing getting this on Blu-ray. I did not remember that at all. That was a number of years ago. Like I think oh. three or four probably. 
Wow. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I, you got a good gift then. <laughs> I didn't even <laughs> yeah. remember that. <laughs> yeah. Well, listeners, if you haven't seen A Christmas Story and you don't want the movie spoiled for you, then go ahead and click pause right now. Come back and click play after you've seen the movie and we'll be ready to talk about it. As an adult, Ralphie Parker, voiced by Gene Shepard, whose life this is based on, reminisces on a childhood Christmas. We follow his childhood self, played by Peter Billingsley, as he makes his way through the month of December, trying to figure out how to get a Red Ryder BB gun on Christmas morning. The only problem is everyone from his mother, played by Melinda Dillon, to his teacher, to even Santa Claus himself, tells him, you'll shoot your eye out. Nevertheless, this doesn't stop him from putting ads in his mom's magazine, writing about it at school, and standing in line forever to ask Santa, all the while getting lost in fantasies about the gun and his parents' annoying behavior. Along the way, he is bullied by Scott Farkas, played by Zach Ward, and Grover Dill, played by Yano Anaya, and that is until he's had enough and beats the snot out of Farkas. His friend Flick, played by Scott Schwartz, gets his tongue stuck to a light pole, and his father, the old man, played by Darren McGavin, wins a scandalously embarrassing leg lamp. All of these antics ultimately fade away on Christmas morning when Ralphie gets his Red Rider BB gun and all is right with the world as credits roll. So I guess that's because of how short your plot summary is, I guess that kind of leads into one of my first positives. This is a very simple movie, right? It's that, but that, that's also its very, probably its most endearing element is that it's like this childlike simplicity to this whole mm -hmm. film, right? Really, in reality, you can boil it down to you follow this kid as he tries to get a certain, he tries to get a red BB gun for Christmas, right? And you just follow him for a few weeks, right? It's like that. Um, it's very, the film itself is very simple, but it's how it goes about that and how it executes that, that childlike simplicity, but also making this world that he builds so it's eccentric and interesting. That's what makes, that's what makes this movie, I feel, probably why it made it so, into becoming a, a household name and like a, a Christmas classic. It's so simple, but at the same time, it's very nostalgic uh, and rides heavily on that idea too. And I think that is one of the really brilliant ways that it captures childhood is childhood just kind of feels like one event to the next, like you're just living from one big thing mm -hmm. to the other. And there is this like through line in childhood of things you're just looking forward to. Yeah. And, you know, you may not get it that day, but there's something else that's going to happen to capture your attention and. Bob Clark described it as um, a series of vignettes mm -hmm. where it's just like a series of these kind of scenes that just all kind of work together really well to tell one story. But nevertheless, on their own, they could almost be taken as mini short films They because they all kind of stand alone, but they're all telling a broader narrative. And it really is this kind of odd combination of like reality, spoof and satire. That's also something else that Clark described it as on the Blu-ray commentary. But nevertheless, you're right. Uh, that is one of my favorite aspects is that, you know, now that I'm an adult, I still love Christmas, but it doesn't quite have that same excitement mm -hmm. that you have when you were a child. But every time I do watch this movie, there still is that childhood wonderment that I'm able to reminisce and be nostalgic over. And that's that's just one of my favorite parts of this movie. Yeah, absolutely. And like you just mentioned, a lot of this film is like 
the anticipation of Christmas morning, right? That's like one of the things that keeps coming back to mostly told through how much Ralph is wanting to, you know, try and weasel his way to get that Red Rider BB gun, like try like sneaking the ad into his mom's magazine, trying to nonchalantly bring it up in conversation, um, that kind of a thing. Like it's, it's always, if everything else is happening in this movie that seems to, you know, go in a different direction from where this movie's central plot line is, its central plot line is Ralph wants the BB gun, right? And everything else kind of seems like branch off that or, you know, manipulate that in some kind of way. And so, yeah, you do get to see how a lot of this film rides on that anticipation. The anticipation of, you know, and that question, is he going to get what he wants for Christmas, right? That's like the biggest question of this movie. Um, and the biggest, I guess, thing that keeps your interest and biggest through line is, is Ralph going to get that BB gun when he when it when it comes to Christmas morning? Um, and that's what makes it kind of endearing is how, you know, how it goes about you no, know, try him trying to weasel his way, you know, nonchalantly trying to slip it in there. The daydreams he has, that kind of thing. It it really does make this movie again that childlike wonder is what really is captured very well. And I know when I was a kid, there was like one big thing that I wanted mm-hmm. in Christmas, and that's all I could think about for like November and December. And I just couldn't wait for Christmas to get here. And you know, I'd write a letter to Santa or I'd ask my parents. And if I had a, like a little magazine with it in there, I, I would look at it. I remember even when the Nintendo DS was coming out, I made at school, I was in fourth grade. I made myself a paper Nintendo DS that folded. Yeah. I, I could pull out the stylus. Um, I would go to those kind of links, I guess I was saying, to yep. entertain myself or to try and satisfy this just really strong desire of what I was going to get on Christmas morning, what I was really hoping for. So the other thing is, even on the technical side, I think this film captures that um, nostalgia really well um, because there's just kind of this glow to the film that gives it this um, kind of almost halcyon memory feel to everything because, and that's the thing that is really cool, this um, isn't played out in real time. This is Ralphie's memories as an adult. Mm-hmm. And the opening of the movie is, um, you know, there I am. Oh, I remember that just really well, almost as if he's just watching his memories, you know, play out on the movie screen. And um, he's the narrator telling us like, oh, oh, yeah, I remember that when I was a kid. And oh, I'd forgotten about that. That was hilarious. So and it is cool because um, the narrator, Gene Shepard, this is based on his book, which is which he wrote um, based on his life as a kid. Gotcha. So being able to kind of narrate your own movie that's based on your life is is kind of very meta in that way as well. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but right. it's also really cool. Yeah, and I think that's that's one of the probably the film's biggest element is that of nostalgia, right? It's a film that is, especially now, I think it just gives it more of that timeless feel, right? Because it's a movie that was made in the eighties, but is set in the forties. Right. And so already when this movie came out, it was already writing heavily on that nostalgia just to begin with. Right. Um, Now, of course, it's even more expounded because of that, because, you know, it's this like you just mentioned, the whole point of this film is this middle aged man at this point recounting one of the as he states the best Christmas present he ever got as a kid, or at least that's how he states it in the film. Right. And so it's kind of cool to see this kid as he you know wanders through at least around a month of time um him 
from the very beginning, the first thing he says, I want that BB gun, right? To the very end when he, when he does get it and how he antics his way through the story to get that BB gun, right? It's very nostalgic um, because it, it, because of those childhood elements, because of like the, you know, the, the dreaded double dog dare. The only thing left here is a double dare or a triple dare and a triple dog dare to put the tongue on the light pole, right? Um, just like as a small example. So one of its strongest elements is that of writing on the nostalgia of childhood, right? That's a very, nostalgia is a very powerful thing, right? And so writing on the nostalgia of childhood, especially when that comes from a personal experience, that usually leads, it can very easily lead to a very well-told story because it comes from such a personal place. And I think it's a great idea to have the opening of the film, not just establish this feeling of camaraderie at Christmas time. There's just this warm feeling in the air, mm -hmm. but of the kids' um, uh, faces pressed up against the glass, yeah. just yeah. Um, so close yet so far away. And I, I'm sure when you were a kid, Alan, as well, that you'd be in a store and you would want to go look at the thing that you wanted. I remember I, I was probably 12 or 13. I think I made my parents take me to circuit city yeah. like every weekend to check out the LG NV2 phone and uh, just had a fun time. Just, I just wanted to hold it. I just wanted to look at it and hold it and whatnot. Uh, just those fun things like that. But the other thing that, is just really incredible to me is the production design and the costume design because this movie is I, I it's just hard for my for me to wrap my head around that this movie comes out in the 80s mm -hmm. but it legitimately feels it gives me the feeling of the 40s yeah um just the look the way everything comes across nothing feels phony or fake about it and um i'm not the only one that feels that way i know People have come up to Peter Billingsley and said, hey, aren't you that kid from A Christmas Story? And he's like, um, I don't know. He's like, am I? And they're like, well, you couldn't have been because that movie came out in the 40s. Yep. And they did such a good job of cementing the period because this is a period piece that people just come to think of this movie as a very old Christmas movie. And I, it's really hard of it, hard to not think of it that way. So yeah, it's kind of a, one of those things too. Like there were too many films that hearkened on like the 1940s or 1950s until maybe a couple of years from now where Back to the Future would come out and it would hearken back on 1955, right? You know, I don't mm -hmm. think from my knowledge, there weren't too many films that no. did this kind of thing where it was a period piece, but only to about 40 years from the time the movie came out, right? Now, of course, we get that quite often where there was a lot of period pieces that come out this year to tell a story that came out sometime in the 40s or 50s, right? That's pretty mm -hmm. typical now. But back in the day, back in the day when this came out, not necessarily, right? So again, writing on that nostalgia, again, you're setting it back in the 40s, um, which already raises, you know, that nostalgia for men who, men and women who are already are, as old as the as the narrator in this film is, but at the same time too, you also bringing in the the children of the crowd to kind of show that in some ways things haven't really changed, right? It's been even though this film was set in the '40s and is following a kid wanting a certain present at the time of Christmas, it's the same thing, right? Nothing really has nothing really has changed a whole lot. That same process still abides even in the '80s and even into today, right? It might go a different route, but it's the same thing in reality. 
And speaking of the child actors, I think they all give really good performances. Uh, they, they have great camaraderie with each other and they have just that right amount of back talk to their parents. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I noticed when I was watching the commentary and that I've always noticed, but it never quite clicked with me is that this family to me feels real. This feels like a real family. I buy that. That's his son. That's the mom and whatnot. I think all of these characters have such great chemistry together and nothing feels forced. And that's something that I really appreciate is they don't try to call attention to it. And I think this movie really doesn't feel pretentious in that way. They're just straightforward making this movie, telling this story, and it all just congeals really well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really funny, too, because... Again, because it's told from a child, we get to see this world from the child's perspective. So everything's overblown, right? You have the <laughs> father who is always screaming obscenities at something, whether it be the furnace uh-huh. or whether it be the tire or whatever. And then you've also got a mom who's doing some, some of the same thing, overprotective and that kind of thing. So you, it's kind of it also makes this world very interesting when you really get into it be, because of how overblown it is. I think one of my favorite scenes is when they finally go to visit Santa, right? The line is crazy long. They finally get up to him and you get a little bit of that of Santa be like, if he thinks I'm going to go past nine, he can eat my shoe or whatever. And then um, (laughs) when Ralphie is sent down the slide, uh, Santa, you know, puts his boot on him and just pushes him down. Right. It's just because of how they overblow a lot of things. Right. It makes this movie that much funnier because you're getting to see it from a kid's perspective. Right. Which gives it mm-hmm. a little bit more, uh, a bit more of that like childlike feel again, again because of that nostalgia. Yeah, speaking of that Santa scene, the grumpy man that says "young man," the line ends here. It begins over there. Mm-hmm. That's actually Gene Shepard. Oh, really? I never knew that until I watched the commentary. That is our narrator himself. Wow, I didn't know that either. Wow. The other thing is that I think a lot of people don't necessarily associate with this movie, but it's there if you look for it, is there is kind of this like dark cynicism to it as well, where kids really only see the wonderment of it all. But on the other side, the adults, like the elves are like, okay, you guys are just super annoying. I'm doing this to pay my bills. I don't have to deal with you stupid kids that are just going to sit here and scream and pee on my lap. Yep. And that's also kind of the funny side that I can also appreciate now that I'm an adult is, you know, oh my gosh, we got to go to the mall and there's all these kids over here. We got to go shopping. Gosh, I got to deal with all this stuff. (laughs) So there also is that side to it as well that, the kids just like to see the nostalgia, but then at the same time, um, even Santa himself says, you'll shoot dry out and he taps his face with this boot and he's like, no, yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. So there is that kind of dose dosage of adulthood mixed in there as well. Yeah. And I, you could even see that as like the, the, you know, the middle-aged man who's retelling the story. He's starting mm-hmm. to realize, you know, now as a grown adult remembering this, starting to realize what people meant by certain things that they said, right? Um, so, you know, picking up now that you're an adult, picking up on things that you know that you didn't really notice as a kid, <laughs> thinking back on it and noticing now I understand why they said that kind of a thing, right? So, yeah, one of the other things too is I really I didn't know they didn't really pick up this on the first time that I watched it, but I mentioned this in the in the introduction, the. Um, 
a lot of the products in this film are like actual real things, right? I always thought mm -hmm. for the longest time that the Red Rider BB gun was just a made up thing for the film. That is not the case. Uh, now, while the gun itself that they portray in the film may have been slightly modified from what they had before, the gun itself was real. And in fact, Red Rider as a real character has his own comic book, all kinds of stuff. In fact, everything that we see in this film, from what I understand, I don't think that there really is anything here that isn't an actual product that exists, even down yeah. to the toy store that they show off or an actual toy store. It's very mm -hmm. interesting that they chose to go down that route where it shows the realistics. Now, of course, by this day and age, kids don't really buy a Red Rider BB gun unless it's for nostalgic reasons because of this movie. But mm -hmm. regardless, it's surprising that they would go down this route. I would have assumed that they would go more for a thing or there. It's a product made up for this film, but is meant to resemble like something that would be a part of real life, but isn't actually. No, that's not the case. This film goes for those real products. I think that's also a part of why people love this movie so much is that it does feel so real mm -hmm. that there is those products people can identify with. The world feels so real and lived in. And that's because it was a real world once upon a time. Yeah. Yeah. I like that when he goes um, to his mom's bedroom and he's like, I grabbed from my mom's copy of Look Magazine yeah. and tucked it in there. That was the real issue of the magazine that they went back and found. So um, that was one of the things I talked about in the commentary is they wanted to do everything as real as possible. So when they open up those toys on Christmas, those are actual, those aren't props. Those are actual toys that they went and found um, mm -hmm. from the 40s. And that is that kind of uh, funny aspect. I always think how um, Randy is like, wow, a Zeppelin, which today's modern child would be such a boring present. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And he, did you notice he had a Frankenstein mask laying I saw on that. the ground next to him? Yep, I saw that. Yep. Yeah, I just I think that's all funny, but I think that's just part of what makes this movie so great is that everything does feel so real. Like there nothing is faked, like their limitations, they got to walk to school, the dad's car is freezing up, somebody left the damper down on the furnace. Yep. Um I think that's just really draws me in as to how real everything is. And also kind of piggybacking off of this idea of, you know, keeping it real with the actual products that existed, right? It's kind of interesting that this movie focuses so heavily on American consumerism, right? That it shows how mm -hmm. much it influences the kids. It shows how much, you know, Americans or not just maybe just not just Americans, but how much families look at certain things and how it influences their decisions. One key example of this is the it was the little Annie decoder ring, right? Uh main character is so excited to get it and about halfway ish through the film he finally does it does finally come in the mail and he's so excited to understand okay what is the secret message from little orphan annie and i'm going to come to find out and you know he drank so many gallons of ovaltine to get it and whatever only come to find out it says remember to drink your ovaltine <laughs> right it's just kind of it's kind of like ironic and kind of sad but also at the same time hilarious because you know he was so excited to understand what was the message? What's the secret message from, you know, this radio show that he listens to that all the time? Only to come to find out it's something stupid, like, you know, advertising a product, right? And how that also at the same time influenced his decision in a different way, influenced his decision to want to buy that uh, Red Rider BB gun because he uh, he likes the comics of Red Rider and wants, to, and wants that BB gun, right? 
it's that same thing, that same American consumerism and how the things that we see and the things that are advertised, how much they influence, especially us as kids, how much they influence our decision on the things that we ask for for Christmas. That's a really interesting point that I had not quite considered is this is probably the dawn of what we kind of consider, especially this holiday rush consumerism, this Black Friday type stuff mm -hmm. is using different methods to get to the kids whether it's the department store window, it's the comics, it's the radio, even more yep. modern technology. They get to listen to the show, which prompts them to become a subscriber to this, which prompts them to want to send away money to get the decoder ring. And then it's all just a product placement in the end. And it has nothing to do with, uh, is Annie going to escape from the pirates? what it nothing to do furthering her story and it's yeah. all just a product tie-in with Ovaltine in partnership so yeah there is that aspect of it that this movie kind of takes on as well is how kids um i know people probably don't like this movie but i love um jingle all the way with arnold schwarzenegger and how the lengths he goes to get the turbo man action doll so i think that's a pretty fun um play on that consumerism as well at Christmas time. But mm. that that is interesting to note. Um, you notice when he gets the letter, it's addressed to Master Ralph Parker. And my dad told me that whenever kids got mail um, back then, it, they were always addressed as master. Oh, yeah. And I never knew that. I, I really thought that was interesting. I never got mail as a child. So <laughs> <laughs> I do not know. You know, I do also like that there are some Christmas traditions that we see in this movie that I feel have kind of faded away, such as putting up the Christmas tree on Christmas Eve, because that's technically when Christmas begins, the 12 days of Christmas. Right. And actually going to buy like an actual um, Christmas tree and they make fun of what we what I I've got two of them in my house right now. The um, fake type Christmas trees and they yep. say they look like green pipe cleaners. And uh, it's just really funny because that's like what most people have now, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, the one thing that we haven't talked about yet is Ralphie's fantasies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That he has. That's right. And I got to say, of course, when I was a kid, I had these all the time. I was always the hero saving everybody and doing something very romantic and incredible and it's just amazing. So I, I really thought what could have been corny was actually pretty true to real life where, you know, if your mom makes you eat soap too much, you're just going to go blind and then they'll be sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Just funny stuff like that. Yeah, that was probably my favorite one. It's just because of how absurd it is, right? Like the other, yeah. the other few that he has, there's some kind of, okay, I understand where this is coming from, right? And then all of a sudden he has this fantasy of, well, his mom gave him so much soap that he went blind, right? <laughs> it's just something so absurd about that that I find to be hilarious. And how his family was like, oh, what could have we done different? What did we do to cause this, Ralphie? And he goes, the soap. And they're like, oh, <laughs> I knew we gave him too much soap or whatever. It's, oh yeah, that was one of my favorite fantasies from him. It's just because it is just so absurd, right? But it is at the same time still so funny. Yeah, those fantasies are great, how they kind of come in and out. And it's nice to see, it's nice to follow it up with his like pre and post reaction, how it's usually precipitated by some event that an adult kind of imposes upon him, like his teacher makes him write a theme. So he thinks, oh, yeah, 
I'll write the greatest theme she's ever written. Yep. And then he, you know, thinks of all the kids, you know, carrying up on his shoulders. Um, after his mom sends him to bed crying from the soap, cuts back to his reaction of him just smiling in bed. <laughs> yep. And I would do that as well. Um, so one of the fantasies that was cut, I was able to read the script pages. They, uh, I, I can't find footage of it anywhere, but there is this uh, apparently incredible sequence that where most of the film's budget went to hmm. of creating this massive set where Ralphie is on a planet and Flash Gordon is tied up. And Ming the Merciless is like 17 feet tall and he's sending this deadly balloon to Earth to destroy the Earth and Ralph, Ralphie pops up. Peter Billingsley said they had him dressed in a bikini? Um, I don't want to see that. Um, that's what he said. And they used the red, he used the Red Rider BB gun to shoot the balloon down. And this all takes place in outer space. It was going to be this huge sequence. So, um, hmm. It actually was going to fit in between um, when Ralphie is writing his theme. So he has the a fantasy of Miss Shields um, giving him all the A pluses, but then he also has a fantasy of Miss Shields coming to their house and um, telling the parents that they need to write a theme about how great their son is. Yeah, and he's awesome. And then he sees his Flash Gordon comic book, and then he goes into that, and then his dad gets home from work. So okay. that was also that was going to be an extremely long fantasy sequence. Interesting. I did read that they were going to have Flash Gordon being one of them, which was in yes. one, I guess. But that's interesting. Hmm. It would have been really weird. Apparently, Bob Clark said on the first viewing of the movie, he immediately knew it needed to be cut. Yeah, because it was way too long, and it and it kind of derailed the feeling of the film. Gotcha. I honestly can't imagine that being in the movie. That would just be really weird to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, other things that I do like about this movie are they're like really great musical cues, um, such as like the saxophone playing during the lamp scene. Um, there is also the uh, uh, wall plug when it catches on fire and yep. um, how that ties in with the lamp and he saying like the lamp blazed forth in an unparalleled glory. <laughs> um, also when um, the lamp is destroyed and he says, I think that I heard taps being played in the backyard during that scene, just these like really yep. funny things. And then all of a sudden you start to hear taps being played yep. and whatnot. So if you listen for it during these scenes, there is something really funny with like the musical cues going on in the background. You know, and that's kind of the thing, too, is that usually when you have a narrator in a film, um, it's the the knowledge that they are presenting is like it does. It, most time the trope is that when there's a narration, there doesn't actually ever need to be a, an actual narration. You know, <laughs> it's one of those things. But this is also a film where, you know, it just wouldn't work without it. I feel partly because the narrator himself is very much a very defined character because he has these very run-on sentences that you know <laughs> are ha, use language that are way above whatever the kid would understand but that's just what makes his character so interesting um so for example paul Molive had a had a let's see if i can say this right paul Molive had a nice piquant after dinner flavor heady but with just a touch of smoothness right that's one of the lines mm -hmm. when he has the soap in his mouth um 
things that a kid would never say, but at the same time, it works so so great with the character uh, that they portray for the narrator. That's one of the things that I end up loving is actually almost looking forward to the narrations and how he would explain things. It just made it so unique. Oh, yeah. This movie is filled with great quotes, especially from the narrator himself. Mm. I mean, I this movie made me want to read the book that it's based on because yeah. Gene Shepard wrote this movie and he's the narrator of it. And I, I mean, I love it when um, Gene Shepard says, was there no end to this irrational prejudice against Red Rider and his peacemaker? Yep. <laughs> I mean, the writing is really brilliant, honestly, with a lot of the stuff where he talks about the lamp and he kind of infuses um, more so adult feelings into a child's mindset because a child isn't able to really flesh these out in words, whereas an adult could yeah. because the child doesn't quite understand these feelings. So when Ralphie's looking at the leg lamp, the narrator is saying, talking about the soft glow of electric sex in the window. And a child would never say that, yeah. but it's kind of um, um, marrying these childlike feelings on screen with these adults' thoughts coming through the narration. Um, my favorite line is, my father wove a tapestry of obscenity that is to this day still hanging over Lake Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. I got to say, so good. one of my favorite scenes is... When the leg lamp breaks, you kind of mentioned it a second ago, but it's like right before that. The leg mm -hmm. lamp breaks, it's before he buries it. And you get to see, you see mom like walk into the living room and she has this face. And then you hear a crash and dad's on the basement screaming obscenities at the, at the <laughs> furnace. And he hears it break and he runs upstairs. Um, and the quote is from the narrator, what happened next was a family controversy for years, right? And the lines mm -hmm. are, you were just jealous of this lamp. Jealous? <laughs> jealous of what? Jealous that I won. And then a little bit later, get the glue. We're out of glue. You used up all the glue on purpose. <laughs> it's a, oh, yeah. One of my favorite scenes because of just how it's it's mom and dad like getting mad at each other. But it's, mm -hmm. you know, of course, shown from the kid's perspective is just so funny. Oh, yeah. And I love how even though it is, even though the kids aren't in that scene, they're not privy to it. They didn't witness it. Mm. It still is kind of told from their memory of how parents would react in really huffy ways. Yeah. And in really kind of, you know, parents can kind of be a little sneaky with each other sometimes yeah. in what they do. It's really funny. I love that as well. Um, you know, when he first gets the lamp and he goes out into the street just to see how it looks and it draws this big crowd. Yeah. The neighbor that walks up, Swede, that is, I never knew this. That's Bob Clark. Really? I guess I, yeah. I, I missed that. Wow. That's Bob Clark. And he's like, that's a major award. And he's like, how did you win that? Mind power, Swede, mind power. <laughs> and then he calls him a nincompoop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I just love that scene as well. But I was really um, surprised Bob Clark had that cameo in there. I, I didn't know that was him, but yeah. very cool. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, I always remember the oh fudge. Yep, I love that as well. And he looks at his dad, and his dad's like, "Where did you hear that word?" And he's like, "I heard it from my father no less than ten times a day." <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> and then he goes to the mom, and he's like, "Do you know what your son just said?" And uh, yells at Randy to get back, and 
the dad's trying to change the tire and you know record time just just funny things that you know dads want to do yeah i gotta say one of my favorite characters actually ends up being uh the brother right because it, it feels yeah. like he's almost dragged around for half the film <laughs> right like especially with the, the first scene that mom is putting on his jacket right he's she's just like just thrashing him around trying to get his jacket over his mm -hmm. arms and everything and he's just sitting there just taking it right just as she's like moving him around almost giving him a whiplash it's i remember when i was watching it for the first time that that was again another scene where i just i just could not stop laughing because this kid is just like you know just taking it just like flopping around as mom is trying to button him up and then when she does get him buttoned up he can't move his arms his arms are stuck and all he can do is just kind of waddle to go anywhere and when he does fall down, he can't get back up. It, just that whole sequence with the brother and him getting his uh, him getting his coat on is just so so funny to me. And the funny thing is, you realize that it's it's true mm -hmm. because I've watched my um, I've watched my wife's mom. I watched her little brothers get it ready to go out in the cold, and they've got their little booties on. They've got double scarves wrapped around their neck. They've got these big gloves on. They're just packed to the brim with this kind of stuff to stay warm and they don't like it. And they don't stay as still as Randy. He's pretty docile. Yeah, yeah, Randy, yeah. When, the, when those go on, but it is hilarious. And it really is some really great humor. And honestly, there's like just those like standout scenes that you don't forget. And you could, I mean, the leg lamp, like everybody knows what that is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, when you hear you'll shoot your eye out, I think of this movie when um, when the kid gets his tongue on the stuck on the flagpole. Mm -hmm. Never forgot that scene. It's it's incredible. Yeah. And it's it's kind of funny because, you know, this film is very much hearkening on like, you know, these scenes, like certain moments like around this time of year, um, while they might not have a lot to do with the film as a whole, like getting uh, a student's tongue stuck to the light pole mm -hmm. never has really any real repercussions that come back from it the fact that you know it's still a part of the story right and it's funny that people remember moments from this movie like getting a lamp stuck in the light or getting uh tongue stuck to the light pole um the leg lamp things like that also it's about a film that I, ironically, in some ways, you know, is about that same kind of thing. Just a collection of moments with the with the small through line to connect them all. And it ultimately culminates in one of my favorite scenes is the Christmas morning scene, mostly for the purpose of how it brings back memories, because Ralphie wakes up to this wintry morning that almost seems like it might be another fantasy but it's not like it's almost like the fantasy and reality have come together and i love how i love that line at the end like all is right with the world mm -hmm. where it really does feel that way around christmas morning and once again the music is really great where um he opens up the window and there's this xylophone that's transitioning into the harp and it's building this like tranquil anticipation and then excitement of what's to come. And then ultimately yeah. they run downstairs and it's like, everything's kind of been building to that moment. And one of the things that I never really realized at first, but it's really surprising, but I think it's a great thing is that the one person Ralphie doesn't ask for the BB gun is the one person that gets it to him. That's true. And yeah. that's his dad. And I think they're showing this kind of unspoken bond between father and son where the dad was like, I had one when I was eight years old. 
So he may not have even known that Ralphie wanted the BB gun, but nevertheless, it's almost kind of this rite of passage, this really kind of bonding moment between the two of them, even though Ralphie's never brought it up to him before. Yeah. And it's kind of it's kind of funny too, because now looking back on this movie, um, it's it kind of I kind of funny because how connect how much there is a connection. Uh, a few years ago, I, I want to say it was probably before we watched this movie. I, I could have been after, but I don't exactly remember. My dad actually got my brother and I a couple of BB guns, BB rifles no, for Christmas. Really? Yeah, uh, we they're still at home. I, I can't exactly bring it into the city. Um, they don't work out of that kind of thing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, just another one of those things. Now I was watching it. I was like, oh, yeah, because when that Christmas, it was a number of years ago. Yeah, we got BB guns for Christmas, um, which was a lot of fun. So, yeah, that, one of those things that I didn't realize and, you know, how much I guess I connected to it until watching it now. Mm hmm. Yeah. And the other thing also that I think makes this movie so kind of connective and that draws me to it is also the editing. I think. They did a great job. This movie easily could have fell apart through the editing mm -hmm. because they could have made these scenes feel really disconnected or disjointed, but it all feels really, um, it flows really well for me as far as transitioning to Christmas and just going to school. You don't want to write a theme. You don't want to do anything during December. It's not time for that. It's Christmas time right. and whatnot. But I got to say, one of my favorite pieces of editing is the unwrapping of the presents, how once it's time for Ralphie to play Santa, it immediately cuts to this just cacophony of noises of that wrapping paper. And I appreciate the film even pays attention to that detail that just as much of Christmas is the noises that uh, come with it as well. Um, whether that is the carolers in the beginning of the movie or it's the wrapping paper. I just think I love that scene where it's just cutting between the unwrapping of the presents so well and of course, it's funny to see the kids get socks and the iconic pink bunny suit also. Yep, of course. Another thing that's just iconic, like a lot of other things in this film, that comes from one of his aunts who still thinks that he's a, he's a girl, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but uh, you're right. They, they think out of everything, this film captures, you know, what it, especially Christmas time, like around, especially Christmas Day, I guess. It captures, you know, the feeling of being a kid on Christmas Day, what it's what it's really like, right? A lot, a lot of other Christmas films are about like, you know, the true meaning of Christmas and how it's all about, <laughs> you know, you know, being with family and whatnot. And while that's still to an extent is here, taking it from a kid's perspective, it looks a little bit different, right? You know, it, it's a bit of a different story when you go down the a kid's fantasy route when it comes to this time of the year, right? So yeah, you're right. This does also capture Christmas Day and Christmas Day also feels very different from every other scene that happens in this film because it goes a few different ways and then ends in a very it ends in a much different way where it's just mom and dad sitting in the living room lit only by the Christmas tree as they look outside and the kids are upstairs sleeping. It's kind of tranquil compared to everything else, which just seems a bit hectic and crazy. Whereas in the ending scene, it's it slows down a little bit just for a moment. It's interesting. Yeah, that's a good point that pretty much the entire like Christmas Day sequence does kind of slow down. And especially there is that really nice scene afterwards with the parents. They're just watching the snowfall. They have the lights off in the house. And there is that just kind of tranquility of the day of, of Christmas of everything that's involved. Mm -hmm. But this movie does because it really captures that 
you know, how kids are, they're always like moving from one thing to the next. And that's how it is with uh, Ralphie and these characters is they're either dealing with the bully or he's listening to Annie or they're trying to buy a Christmas tree or change something. A lot of things happen. Whereas I like how with the Christmas scene, it becomes really linear and it slows down because it takes their time opening up presents. Uh, even going to see the parents open up presents. The dad gets that can of cyanide or whatever. It's, it's so funny how adults are like, Oh, I love this stuff. And kids are like boring. Yeah. You know, the Turkey is ruined. And I just like that. Cause I know for me on Christmas day, um, we do just spend the whole day with family and we just eat and relax and hang out. And I like how I get that feeling here as well. Um, it really does take its time. And it's the most, I would say it's probably the most linear sequence is this very final sequence uh, from Christmas morning till night when Ralphie uh, goes to bed with his gun and all is right with the world. And mm -hmm. that's just kind of the perfect ending for the movie. Yeah. And of course, it, the scene when they, when the dogs come in, ruin the turkey, and then they go to uh, the Chinese restaurant for Christmas instead this was the scene that had me laughing for literally probably 10 or 15 minutes straight when um, they're talking about like, oh, it's the duck and no, oh, it's it's smiling. And he goes, oh, yeah. And then takes out the knife and chops his head off. Right. That scene, yeah, that, that right there, that killed me and my family for probably 10 to 15 minutes straight. <laughs> and we, we probably re went back and replayed that five or six times. And just could not stop laughing. That was that was a scene that killed us all. At the, and funny enough, one of the last scenes of the movie too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's also um, cool because it's just one shot. It's one yeah. take. Yeah, they, it's like a, it's just a slow zoom in on the on our on the family. Yeah, and we never actually go inside the restaurant. We see the whole thing from the outside, which is interesting that they chose to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so the one thing that I did talk about in your guide to a Christmas story, but I did want your reaction here on the show, Alan. Okay. Darren McGavin was not originally cast, or well, no, he was originally cast. He wasn't um, the studio's first choice to play the old man. Okay. They actually gave the script to none other than Jack Nicholson. That would have been interesting. Mm -hmm. that would have been so interesting i wonder what that would have been like oh that would have been I, interesting it really would have been interesting but honestly i i mean i agree with uh, bob clark that darren mcgavin is just perfect in oh this yeah role. absolutely yeah i mean i can kind of see where uh jack nicholson would fit in as the dad but uh -huh. i feel like you know having the having the actor who plays him now I feel like he works better than probably what Jack Nicholson would do. I, I guess I attribute him more to horror than anything else, but still. I mean, I think Jack Nicholson probably also would have been a little too young. I like that these seem kind of like older parents. They seem much more established in their relationship and as parents instead mm -hmm. of um, just young parents. They don't come across young to me. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, and it was interesting because the mom was cast after Bob Clark watched um, her in Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Okay. I guess that performance, he's like, yeah, I want her in the role. Yeah, I still get to see that, actually, for good things. Yeah. One of the things that I was surprised by, but I really appreciated, is they 
gave these kid actors enough room to semi improvise their lines. And the reason they did that is because they wanted to create a realistic camaraderie mm -hmm. among children. And that's why I think the kids dialogue comes across so well is because sometimes these are the kids just talking with each other and messing around. So I like that aspect. Yeah, I guess that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, you're right. That does kind of give them like as it makes it feel like they're actually friends and not just acting like they're friends. Mm -hmm. Well, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for a Christmas story? Like I mentioned, the last time I watched a Christmas story was a number of years ago. Right. So it's been uh probably like i said probably about six or seven years since i i've seen this movie so at the time I remember really liking it um but hadn't returned to it for one reason or another until now when we decided to do it for our christmas special and i'm so glad that i was able to come back to it because i found a, a whole new love for this movie because it's not one that i again haven't seen in a while so i see a lot more things in this movie than i did originally Right. One of those biggest one of the biggest things is that of that American consumerism theme, right? How it is affecting this entire movie and even goes as far as to infect, you know, the decision of our main character to ask for that big thing for Christmas. Right. That being the Red Rider BB gun. But American consumerism aside, you know, this is still a movie that I still find to be not only unique, but also one that I find very easy to connect to. It's It still keeps itself unique and without being too generic. And that's what makes it so much fun to watch. There isn't ever really any downtime. It feels like this movie moves along so effortlessly to get from one moment to the next, but ends in a ends with Christmas Day being a rather, again, separated from the rest of the movie is somewhat tranquil. But at the same time, it's like, you know, it's a breath of fresh air finally after being in a hectic movie so yeah at the end of the day i ended up loving a christmas story all over again so yeah definitely going to be an eight out of ten and a solid recommend for me a christmas story is a true christmas classic capturing the anticipation of childhood leading up to christmas morning and the satisfaction along with the adversities of adolescence is portrayed perfectly in this film aided by gene shepherd's superb narration the film is the complete package for what you could hope for in a holiday film. One of the most striking things for me is the production design. I genuinely believe this period piece. Not once do I think it was made in 1983 because they capture the spirit of the 40s so well, from the intrinsic costume design to the blue collar world that seems so long ago. And although I have no association with this time and never lived there, Nevertheless, there is something that is so connective about it. This film is simply a joy to watch every Christmas, and I hope it is for you too. A Christmas Story receives 8 stars out of 10 with a strong recommend. Well, we both own it on Blu-ray. That's cool because I yeah. didn't remember you own this one, Alan. That's true. Yeah, we both do own it, so I guess we don't really have to say would we recommend or would we buy or pick <laughs> up the Blu-ray because we already have <laughs> Well, another um, recommendation that I have for after watching this movie is another movie about childhood that came out in the early 80s, but captures a older time period is Annie. Oh, interesting choice. I, I at least remember it being good. I haven't watched it in a while. So. I've seen the remake oh. with Jimmy Fox. Oh, and, okay. Uh, wasn't a big fan of that one, but that's a different I, story. 
not that piece of trash I'm talking <laughs> about. <laughs> I'm talking about the original. I like that one. You know, you're um, talking I like about the, the music. One. Yeah, I like the music. And I think that's another one that I'd like to go back and watch again. Um, as for other Christmas movies I recommend, well, I recommend all of the Christmas specials that we've done, which you can go back and listen to. Speaking of all the other Christmas specials that we've done, my recommendation is actually the National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, which we did last mm, year. Um, yeah. That, that almost feels like a more grown up, as if, you know, Ralphie were to grow up and have his own uh-huh. family and everything. This is what it would end up being. So that's my recommendation. If you like a Christmas story and you haven't seen National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, definitely check it out. Well, you may be surprised to hear this, Alan, but this there are four sequels. To now, this movie. I knew that there was one, but I didn't know that there were four. That is a bit surprising to me. I'm a little bit curious. Before I jump into those, as I said, this has become a classic and still has a strong life on TNT and TBS. Every year they play at 24 hours uh, from, I believe it's like from from midnight Christmas Eve to midnight Christmas Day. Um, so yeah, it really still has a strong life on TV. So if you haven't seen it this year and you're coming to the end of the review with us, well, then your opportunity is coming up. That is if anybody still has cable, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Whoever has that ancient technology. (laughs) So aside from that, this movie, although it wasn't very successful at the box office, it still did spawn a number of sequels. So The first one um, was um, on PBS. The television station had a series called American Playhouse. Season four, episode nine, which actually aired on my birthday. I was negative 10 in 1985, just in case anybody wants to know. It was titled The Star-Crossed Romance of Josephine Kosnowski, which was narrated and written by Gene Shepard as a sequel to this film it's only 56 minutes long because it was like a tv episode like an hour-long tv episode mm-hmm. i don't think you can find it anywhere except maybe youtube i uh, good luck getting your hands on it but um of course ev- everybody was recast um not the same people um three years later on august 6 1988 the second pbs production in collaboration with the disney channel oh. came out and that one is titled Ollie Hop Noodles Haven of Bliss. And it was later released on video under the Disney banner. Interesting. Most interesting of all, in 1994, Bob Clark and Gene Shepard reteamed to create a direct sequel to A Christmas Story. Now, this is, I think, the one that I've heard of. It's like a parsley musical, right? I don't know. I don't know. I don't think it's a musical. Anyway, so it was a different cast, save for Shepard narrating and writing. Um, Teddy Moore did reprise her role as Miss Shields 11 years later. Um, It's also an adaption from the same source material, um, but this film ignores the previous two sequels. It was a complete box office bomb, grossing almost $71,000. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) on a supposedly 15 million dollar budget oh yeah yikes so and that's kind of funny because the whole reason that we never got a christmas story two, like right after this movie because we talked we okay we've reviewed tons of movies from the 80s and that was like the um decade of sequels Mm -hmm. 
where, yeah, so many sequels came out. This movie did so bad, that's why it never got a sequel, except on PBS television. And then finally in theaters, it did get one. So that movie was originally called It Runs in the Family. Okay. So since it did so bad at the theater, they renamed it for home video as My Summer Story. And you can buy it on home video. So if anybody's curious, I'm curious. I, I want to see it now. I'm curious too. And then finally, now as recently as 2012, a direct-to-video direct sequel was released titled A Christmas Story 2, taking place five years after the first film. So it ignored all previous sequels, a zero involvement from the original cast and crew, and it has a 3.3 on IMDb. Also, this movie has been adapted for the stage three times. First in 2000, second in 2012 as A Christmas Story, the musical. That's probably what you're thinking of. Maybe. Um, which opened on Broadway and ended in December that year. It did receive three Tony nominations, so it couldn't have been that bad. And finally, in 2017, A Christmas Story Live debuted as a three-hour television stage play on Fox. That's probably what you're thinking of. You're right. That is the one I'm thinking of. Well, listeners, that brings us to the end of our fifth annual Christmas special. We are so happy that you joined us, and we really do hope that you have a Merry Christmas. Hopefully you are able to spend it with some friends and family and still stay safe and not get sick. Also, make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast. Um, we normally don't release episodes on Friday. It's just because it's Christmas Day this episode has come out. But every Monday we do release episodes and this next one is Creed 2, which is the eighth and so far final installment in our Rocky movie review series. So if you haven't, now's a great time over the weekend to catch up on all of our Rocky reviews leading up to the very end of that series. And then after that is Alan's birthday pick, which is three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. And then after that, we are finally wrapping up our nolan review series with tenant that is um, january 11th but in the meantime don't forget about those christmas specials in the description below we will also put in some other movies if you want to like i said we review tons of movies from the 80s so we'll put in a couple of those as well if you want to check out our thoughts on some major 80s franchises and uh, we'll also put down um, the link to all of our Rocky reviews so you're able to catch up on those before we finish it off with Creed this coming Monday. So listeners, the question after the show is, did you ever want or actually get a Red Ryder BB gun for Christmas? I know I did. Alan got some uh, BB guns, it sounds like, for Christmas as well. Yep. I'm very curious who else got that. Alan, thanks for joining me. Sure thing. All right. Well, once again, a Merry Christmas, listeners, and we will see you on Monday with Creed 2. Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. 
It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide. Yeah, it's been a while so since I've seen this one. Oh shoot, what an idiot. Sorry, not you, me. I saved the document over the template, so <laughs> that'll be fun to replace. <laughs> oh no. Anyways. <laughs> okay. Um okay. Let me jump back to my notes here. Okay. Sorry. Amateur hour for me. <laughs> then that link is right there and very easy for you to find. So uh, what am I, where was I going to go with this? Yeah, it's kind of funny because I don't know how many films around this time. Uh, I mean, I guess we would get Back to the Future in a couple of years past the. Actually, no, Back to the Future came out the same year, I think. No, 85. Yeah, you're right. I'm thinking something else. Close. It's whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I think that just really draws me in as to how real everything is. Yeah. And one of those, one of the, kind of piggybacking, piggybacking off of this, kind of, and one thing, Let's just start over. Um, and we also, uh, I don't even know where I'm going with this now. I got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> no, just keep going. Just keep going. Just keep going. Keep going. I'm going to make it.